Well, as we're going through the book of Colossians, we have called this series Greater. Somebody say Greater. Greater. We're going through this book to see what Paul and Timothy had to say to this new church plant that was about five years old. And this church plant was struggling because there was all kinds of ideas coming from the world around them that was coming into the church and it was diluting the message of the gospel that this little church plant had received. And it's so funny, but today is so much like it was in the day that this book was written because there's so many things competing in our culture for the affections of our heart to take the place of Christ in our world. And so we're going to be taking a look at this book to see what Paul and Timothy have to say to this church. And I want to encourage you today, hopefully you got the fill in the blank when you walked in or maybe you download the message notes, make sure to circle, highlight, underline anything that sticks out to you in the message. I want you to know that anytime something jumps out at you in the message, oftentimes it is God speaking to the hearts of his people. And uh, it's so funny how sometimes we walk through life wondering if God speaks, but he's prompting our hearts constantly, all the time, knocking on our door. His still small voice is constantly pulling us in to hear what he has to say. So it's been so amazing to see God speaking to people these last several weeks during the series. I believe he's going to talk to you today. Hey, let's pray as we get ready for the word. Father, we love you today. And we thank you for who you are. God, we know that um, your word says that preaching is like foolishness. God, we know that It doesn't matter if a person gets up and communicates the word of God. We need the Holy Spirit to take that word and make it to mold and shape our heart. God, we need your Holy Spirit to speak to us and to shape us and transform us. God, words alone will not do it. God, we need you. And the good news is, God, we have you today. You desperately want to speak to your kids. And so we just say to you today that our hearts are open to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, somebody say a loud, rowdy amen. amen. That's pretty good for the nine o'clock service. I'm pretty impressed. Y'all did really good. Well, hey, before I read our text today, I want us to keep in mind the backdrop of this passage. There was so much confusion in the church regarding who Jesus was. And we talked the first couple weeks about, we called this mixture. People were mixing in information along with the message of the gospel. And we got to understand that the people of this church, they were Greek. And these Greek people were no doubt going back home to their families. And they were talking about their newfound faith with their family, sharing what they had learned about the gospel. And how many know when you're new to faith, you have a lot of questions. And so you're casually talking to people about Jesus and you're letting people know what he's doing in your life. And and perhaps you're asking questions. And how many know people always have answers to questions? (laughs) And the answer answers that they have are not always right. And so these Greek believers were being bombarded with answers to questions that they were having about their faith. And it's so interesting, but, but here at this passage, in this moment, Paul and Timothy step in and they come to set the record straight. Because as questions were being answered, 
People like the religious Jews, when asked, who is Jesus, they were coming in and they were saying things like, well, Jesus is actually not God. We know who God is. And, and if you want to have a relationship with them, you need to follow our religious rules and our dietary rules. And you need to follow our Sabbath and you, you need to be circumcised. And they had a lot of things that they thought people should do. And when these questions were asked of the, their fellow Greeks in the area, the Greeks were following a lot of pagan rituals. And so the Greeks would say, oh, Jesus is good. He's a good guy. He's just like any of the other gods that we have. And you're welcome to serve him along with all the other gods. And so there was all kinds of misinformation. And so Paul and Timothy step in here in this passage to set the record straight on who Jesus is. And it's funny, many of the same arguments that they heard over 2,000 years ago about who Jesus was are much of the same arguments that we hear today, the same thing. So when we talk theologically a little bit about Jesus, one of the things that we hear often is the deity of Jesus. It means that Jesus was God. He is God. He is God in the flesh. He was human, but he was also fully God. And so the deity of Jesus is being attacked in the early church in the first century as it is still attacked today. And so they come to set the record straight here. So today we're going to be talking about, somebody say, a greater Jesus. Because that was the question of the day. Is Jesus as great as God? We're going to be looking at Colossians. You can open your Bibles to chapter 1. We'll be going through verse 15 through 20. And this passage is really the heartbeat of this entire book. If we could sum up Everything that the writer said in all four of the chapters, it can be summed up right here in verses 15 through 20. Let's read it together to see how Paul and Timothy set the record straight about who Jesus is. Here's what it says. The son is the image, someone say image, of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, Jesus, the son, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, someone say all, have been created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Somebody say all his fullness, everything that God had, leaving nothing out, dwelt in Jesus and through Jesus, God reconciled himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, I know there is a lot wrapped up in these six verses. And some of you in here today, if you're new to the church or new to reading the Bible or new to understanding who Jesus is, that probably sound like a different language. You're like, what in the world does all of this mean? We're going to unpack some really strong statements that Paul and Timothy made to this church who was confused about who Jesus was. In fact, there was so many false ideas that were creeping from outside the church 
inside the church. And so we're going to kind of unveil these false ideas so that we can understand why the writers made these statements. So the first response to the question of who is Jesus in your notes is this. Jesus is the image of God. We see this in verse 15a. It says the son, which is Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God. In other words, if we want to see who God is, all we have to do is look to Jesus. There were false teachings that were being addressed here. And here's one of the false teachings in your notes. The Greek philosophers in that time, they believed in your notes that the universe was God's image. They believe that you can look up into the sky and see the vastness of the universe and it described the image of God. It described who God was. And isn't it amazing that if we go out on a clear night or we go to the the right place in the world and we look out into the sky, I mean, it is absolutely beautiful. In fact, scripture says that his creation displays the glory of God. And although it displays the glory of God, it is not the image of God. And so no doubt the universe is beautiful. It is wondrous. It is beautiful. And it is powerful. But it does not come close to explaining how incredible God is. And it's so funny because from one generation to the next, for 2,000 plus years, people have been looking into the sky, trying to understand and describe how it works and describe the beauty of it. And it cannot even be done, let alone give us the fullest, perfect image of God. And so Paul and Timothy actually use this language here that these Greek people who have come to faith in Jesus would understand because they come from this background of Greek philosophy. And he helps them to understand this, that Jesus is the greatest revelation of God that we will ever get. To the new Greek believers, he tells them, Jesus is your new image of God. Now, it's interesting today that there are so many people trying to discover who God is, and they they wrap God up in all different types of ideas, and they pull their religion in, they pull a little bit of their culture in, and they try to understand and describe who God is based off of that. And scripture is saying, friends, we cannot afford to do that. There is only one image of God, and it is the person of Jesus. It is not your moral code. It is not your dress code. It is not the code of your speech and your language. In fact, it is the person of Jesus. And I want to challenge you that if you are tempted to set up someone's dress code and say, well, if God was here, that's what he would look like, or that's what he would sound like, I want to, or these are the things that he would do. I want to challenge you that there is only one person that is the perfect image of God, and that is Jesus Christ himself. He also addresses some other false teachings that were inserted into the church through early forms of Gnosticism. It was just Gnosticism is a false teaching. And here's what they said. They said that the human body is evil. And so the writers come in and and they begin to speak against this concept and this idea. See, people were coming into the church, otherwise known as Gnostics or these Jewish mystics, and they were bringing their opinions in. And they actually believed this. They believed and they taught that all matter was evil. Everything that can be touched is evil, including the human body. 
So for them, they did not have a high view of Jesus because they believed that if Jesus came in the form of a human body, that in fact, the human body is evil. So there's no way that Jesus could be God because the flesh is purely evil. And here's the problem with this kind of thinking. It goes against the entire prophetic message of all of the Old Testament that continues to point us towards Jesus, towards the Messiah, towards the one that's going to come and bring salvation to the world. And it goes against everything scripture describes about the birth of Jesus and the finished work of the cross. And these results were tragic for the early church. You know, if you believe what the Gnostics believed and believe that the flesh is all evil, it's going to just cause humans to do two things. Number one, it's either going to cause humans to dive into extreme religion or it's going to cause them to dive into unbridled sin, which they did both of those things. Because if the body's evil, then the only thing the body can do is evil. It can only sin, and that's the only thing that it's capable of. So why not just dive in and, and enjoy everything that the world has to enjoy? So Paul and Timothy come and set the record straight on who Jesus is, and their answer is, is he is the perfect image of God. So we have to ask ourselves a question today. Who is Jesus to me? Yeah. And does it matter what Jesus has to say? Because if he is not the perfect image of God, then the words of Jesus won't mean anything to you. But if he is the perfect image of God, everything that God would say, everything that God would do, everything that God would respond, how God would act, how God would love, how he would deal with evil, how he would, how he would deal with violence, how he would deal with persecution, how he would deal with racism, how he would deal with money, how he would deal with gender, how he would deal with all of these things, then what Jesus had to say as he weighed into these things, it should weigh heavy on our heart. Do you consider Jesus as the ultimate image of God? Or do you find yourself adding things into what Jesus had to say in addition to what he had to say? Friends, I want you to know today, if you want to know what God is like, you have to look no further than the person of Jesus. Some people are trying to understand God and who is he. And he said, hey, guys, I want you to know I am my son and my son is me. And everything you need to know about me is wrapped up in my son. In fact, Jesus says this in John 14 and seven. He says it like this to his disciples. He says, if you really know me, Jesus said, then you will know my father as well. Why? Because Jesus only did things that the father wanted him to do. They were in complete union. Jesus never did anything without the heart of the father in mind, without the will of the father in mind. And so Jesus tells him, from now on, because you know me, you know the father. And then he says something really bold. He says, actually, you have seen the father because you've seen me. Yeah. And so to see Jesus is to see the father. How many know we ought to listen to what Jesus has to say about God, the Father? What is the word saying to us today? I believe that it's saying, if your God does not look like my son, it is not me. We're talking about a greater Jesus. We're looking at the book of Colossians today in chapter 1, verses 15. The writers are setting the record straight about who Jesus is. And in your notes, they declare this next. They declare... 
that Jesus is the firstborn. Somebody say firstborn. This might seem really strange to say something about uh, Jesus, that he's the firstborn. What exactly does this mean? It says this, it says he's the firstborn over all creation. When someone was labeled firstborn, it was not just about birth order, but it was actually about uh, superiority and it was about authority. And the writers were establishing the authority and the superiority of Jesus because Jesus is greater than anything that the world around them was trying to bring into the church. He was greater than any false idea that they had about God. He was greater than anything that they wanted to mix in to their religion as Christ's followers. Why did Paul and Timothy feel the need to declare that he was firstborn? Because I think they were combating three false ideas about Jesus. The first one was this. Many believe this, that Jesus was not equal to God. Some groups believe that Christ uh, was birthed and that it was at his birth that it was actually his beginning. So if a human being was birthed, in creation, just like other human beings, there was no way that he could be supreme like the God of the universe. So there was no way that the people thought that he was equal to God. So therefore, they did not take the words of Jesus and the things that the apostles came and witnessed to the words of Jesus. They did not take those words seriously. Today, there's religions like the Jehovah's Witness who think Jesus was simply a special man. Perhaps he was a good prophet, but there is no way, shape, or form that they would ever agree that he was equal to God. So the writer's response was this. Jesus is equal to God because he was firstborn. He's superior to all creation. John 3 and 35 says this. The father loves the son, and he has placed everything into the son's hands. How many of you know if you have everything that the father has, the rulership, the glory, the authority, all the things in your hands as the son, he has set you up to sit equal with him because he has given you all of the same powers that he has. And that's what the father has done with the son. In fact, the father doesn't do anything without the hands of the son because they are in perfect union together. They are the same. The writers are saying, Jesus was the firstborn. He's superior over all creation. He is equal to God. Remember, this was hard to hear for the Gentiles, the Greek people in this church. And it was also very hard for the Jews to hear that were in the surrounding area because there was a community of Jews in the area. The Jews believed in God, but they didn't see Jesus as God. So this was mind-blowing information that was coming into this brand new church. In fact, the Jews actually crucified Jesus for this claim. The next false idea that they combated in your notes was this, that Jesus did not exist before creation. See, for the Greeks, they argued that Jesus was naturally born. So for them, there was no way he could be equal to God. So Paul and Timothy said that he is the firstborn over all creation. In other words, before anything was ever created, Jesus was just like the father was before anything was ever created. The writers were saying that God wrapped himself in his flesh through the person of Jesus. And at the same time, Jesus existed before he existed in the flesh. There's no time that Jesus ever existed in because he always has been and he always was. Yeah. 
So this was a massive statement that the writers were bringing to this early church. They were setting the record straight and they were saying that Jesus is equal to God and he existed before creation and he is proof because scripture says that all things were created by the hands of Jesus. They continued to pile on the proof and the other false idea that they combated in your notes is this, that Jesus never entered earth. And we just described that we know that he entered earth as he was born over 2,000 years ago and came through a woman and was born as a man, yet he was still fully God. Jesus, in fact, entered the earth and this was mind-blowing to the church in Colossae. Because they had this family of origin that was steeped in Greek mythology. And they could never believe or never imagine that the gods would want to come down to earth and be in relationship with humans. Because all they knew about gods were these cosmic gods that had no relational element to them. That these cosmic gods would bring down destruction. These cosmic gods would send gifts if people were good. These cosmic gods would send down gifts if people sacrifice enough sacrifice sacrifices, but they had no concept of a relational, personal God. And so the writers were coming saying, Jesus, the God of the universe has come in the form of his son, Jesus, and he wants to have a relationship with you. How do we apply this? We've got to ask ourselves this question. Do we see Jesus as God? Do we see him as firstborn existing before all creation and entering into our earth as a person? See, if we agree with the false ideas of the secular religion and the secular culture around them, then then denying the divinity of Jesus would mean that we have no hope at all. If Jesus was not God, there's no hope for the church. If Jesus was not God, there's no hope for humanity. Because Jesus paid the ultimate price, the the cost on the cross that made us right with the Father. There would be no way back to God if it were not for Christ. But if we agree with Paul and Timothy, this is the best news that anybody could ever have. Because Jesus died on the cross and he made a way back to the Father through his sacrifice. Today we're talking about Jesus is greater. Somebody say Jesus is greater. The writers are setting the record straight. And next in your notes, they declare this. They say this, that Jesus is the creator. Again, mind-blowing concept for the people of the day. They could not fathom that the same man that was talked about that walked on the earth was the same man who created the world. This speaks not to just who Jesus was as a person, but what Jesus did as God. We see this in Colossians 1 and 16. It says, for in him, Jesus, all things were created. Paul and Timothy were combating these false ideas in their early time, in the early church. And here's what some of these false ideas in your notes, here was one of them. It was that the elements were responsible for creation. Greek philosophers said this. They said that the elements were responsible for created things. I think that perhaps this is why we have the idea of the big boom and evolution in that sense, because they believe that it was power in all the elements that brought about creation. And Paul and Timothy come and they set the record straight and they say, hey, no, it was actually all things were actually created by the hands of Jesus. 
They weren't created by the elements. And when I consider the intricate design of the world, when I consider how far the furthest galaxy is and how intricate the human body is, I am fully convinced that what God says about his creation has to be true because it can only be created by an incredibly intelligent designer who loves his people. Making sure that they were clear about all that was created, they continued and they said this. They said, not only did he create all things, but all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, were created by him. In other words, he was saying this. I don't know about you, but when I think about creation, Oftentimes I think about the creative counts and my mind kind of grazes over heaven and it goes straight to the, the, that God created the earth and the land and the animals and the, and the people. But in fact, God didn't just create you and I and the land and the earth and the galaxy. In fact, he created the heavens. He's the one who rules the heavens. He's the one who is all powerful. And that's why the writer said all things, he created all things in heaven and on earth, all things that you can see and all things that you cannot see. John chapter one says it like this. It says, through, all, through him, all things were made and without him, nothing was made. There's nothing on this planet that was ever made without the hands of God. The other false idea I believe that they were combating in your notes is this, that the angels were responsible for creation. That was one of the false teachings of the day is that the angels were responsible for creation. In Jewish mysticism, they taught that the angels were the ones who were the powerful ones who created things. And so I believe that's why they drilled down to go on and explain that God also created the visible and invisible world. The world of angels, the supernatural world that nobody can see, that God created them. In other words, God is superior to them. He goes on and he says, thrones and powers, rulers and authorities were created by him. He's establishing Jesus as greater than any force that they can ever imagine, greater than any God that they can ever imagine. You know, I want you to think about this, that when a creator creates something, he knows everything there is to know about how a thing is made. When somebody creates a car, or they create a home, or they create a computer, or a machine of any kind. That creator knows every intricate detail about how that thing is made. And that creator has an, has an end idea in mind about what that created thing was intended to do. And there's nobody but that creator who knows the manual who knows how to fix whatever could be broken with that created thing. And there's nobody but the creator that knows what that thing that they created is capable of. You can sit a child next to a hot rod with no gas in it. That car is fully capable of flying down the street at high speeds, but without the understanding of the type of fuel that that car needs to drive, that car's not going nowhere. And if that child finds some gas and gets in that car, as many 16-year-olds do, and go driving down the street and ruins that car, nobody but the creator knows how to repair what has been broken. And when God created you and I, he knew exactly what we are intended to do. And when we were broken by the fall in the garden, God knew exactly how to repair us. So he sent his son Jesus to make a way for us because we could not do it on our own. How many of you know that God is a really good God? God has the keys to creation. 
every key. He knows how everything works. See, you and I, we stand at the edge of the seashore and we wonder in amazement at the power of the ocean. We stare through a telescope at the amazing beauty of the galaxies and the sky. We sit at the edge of a bed of one of our loved ones who may be sick, wondering how in the world is it that they could ever be better. But did you know that God never wonders any of those things? Because he knows exactly how every one of those things were made because he made them. And he knows how to repair every single one of those things because he created them. Today, the title of our message is Jesus is Greater. What does this mean for us today? The writers are setting the record straight. And the very last thing the writers say, we go down to verse number 18 because Verse 17 and parts of 18, they just reiterate what they've already said. So we're going to take a look at verse 18. It goes on and they say this. They say, and he is the head of the body, Jesus, and the body is the church, that in everything, somebody say everything, that God might have supremacy, superiority, because God is greater Jesus is greater in your notes. That's the last thing he had to say. He says, Jesus is greater. He wanted to make sure that the Jews knew that Jesus was greater than their religion because the Jews proclaimed that their religion was the greatest religion. He wanted to make sure that the Gnostics knew that Jesus was greater than all of their philosophies. And how many know today that there are many religions, even including Christian denominations, that are proclaiming that their ideals are greater than others around them. There are, there are groups and philosophies out there that are saying, our philosophies and our ideas are way better than yours. And Paul, Timothy come and they set the record straight and they say, no, you guys fall way short. There's nothing that compares to our God. He is greater, period. 